Well, good morning. Welcome to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. My name is Frank. Uh, I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the associate pastor. I hope that your Thanksgiving was filled with uh, a blessed time of food and fun and family time. If you would please turn with me to Titus chapter 3. We're finishing up our series on the pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus this morning. Next week, we'll be hopping into a series uh, that will run from Advent this year, since Advent, uh, first Sunday of Advent is next week, all the way through until November of next year. We'll be spending a whole year walking with Jesus, going through the life of Jesus chronologically from uh, all four of the Gospels. But this morning, let's turn our attention to Titus chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another." But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenos, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing. And let our people learn to devote themselves to good work so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. All who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Let us pray. Father, as we come to the end of this series, as we come to the end of Titus, we are confronted with a before and after picture, a picture of what it means to turn in repentance from our sin and to you in righteousness. And Lord, we confess that we are not often good at repentance, that we are not often good at seeing the sin that we ought to turn from. And so, Lord, as we look at these pages, as we look at these words, would you show us our sin that we might turn from it, that we might turn from it uh, in reliance on your gospel through your Son, Jesus Christ. So, Lord, this morning we ask that we would see him, that you would show us Jesus and you would show us your gospel. Be with us and help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, before and afters. 
We love and are captivated by before and after transformations. We gasp at shows like Fixer Upper and Extreme Makeover Home Edition, which hasn't been on TV for a very long time, but I remember watching that back in the day. And it's hard to believe often uh, that a rundown house that we see at the beginning of the show can take on new life and look brand new. It's really amazing to see the difference. And we don't just transform houses, we transform people as well. We transform their looks, a new hairdo, a new wardrobe, some makeup, makeup, and voila, a brand new person, a brand new you with confidence to take on the world by storm. These are stark before and after trans, uh, transformations, and that's essentially what we get here in Titus chapter 3. Remember the context of Titus? Titus is laboring in Crete, and uh, back in chapter 1, Paul, who is writing the letter, agrees with a Cretan prophet who said this about the Cretans. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. That's a far cry from the picture of a submissive, obedient, gentle, peaceable, diligent, and helpful Christian that we get here in chapter 3. Talk about a transformation. And what Paul is doing here isn't putting the onus of change upon the Cretans. He isn't say, saying, hey, get it together, guys. We need to be better. We need to do things differently. Rather, he, he roots his applications in the gospel. The prepositions in verse 3 and 8 tell us that everything is rooted and grounded upon a foundation of the gospel. They aren't to change their behaviors by themselves. They're to see change in their behaviors because of who they are in the gospel. You see, fake it till you make it sounds good and can work for maybe a little bit of time, but will always fail in the long run. It doesn't actually ever work. And so we're brought to a problem. We're brought to a problem that we often think that we're the after picture. You see, Paul has done a good work. He is writing good pastoral words to us, rooting everything in the gospel. It's good preaching, right? We need to understand that all our strivings, all our good works are to flow out of who we are in Christ. And for Titus and the Cretans, that would be obvious. The change that is outlined is so different from the character of the average Cretan that there wouldn't have really been any expectation they could achieve such a change without a profound and fundamental shift, namely salvation through the gospel. And so the upright character, the upright Christian character that Paul describes in Titus chapter 3 would have been so foreign that it would have been seen as sort of asking a tiger to change its stripes. But for us, we have a problem. We, we see again that we think of ourselves as that after picture. We can't really just sort of take these calls to live a life in Christ that has changed and just apply it directly to ourselves because we don't really think of ourselves as needing a change. We hear the exhortations of this passage and don't really think much of them. 
And so listen to the exhortations. We are to be submissive to rulers and authorities. We're to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people, to devote ourselves to good works, to avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, to avoid stirring up dissension and division. This really isn't anything radically different for us. We don't approach that list and think, well, that's a really big change. Some tweaking of our normal patterns, trying to be more consistent, actually doing what we know we should do are all that we really need to do. The picture here of the Christian life isn't a far cry from the middle class, suburban, decent person sensibility. In fact, if I'm honest, I didn't really bat an eye when I initially read that for the first time in preparation for the sermon. My initial thought was, okay, nothing groundbreaking here. I got it. I can do that. But do you hear the implicit pride and arrogance there? While the Cretans rightly thought that they needed a lot of help to live up to the Christian standard, most of us look at that list thinking that we're not that far off. And that's the problem. We hear these exhortations and think that we can do it on our own, despite one of the clearest descriptions of the gospel in verses 3 to 7. We hear the insistence to do good words, and, to, and we almost reflexively admonish, our, admonish ourselves to try harder. I really just need to buckle down and remember to do more good works. I just need to stop being so argumentative. I just need to be nicer. That word just gets us every time because it makes it seem like it's not that big of a deal. But that's legalism. That's not the gospel. And even with the passage rooting things in the gospel, even with Paul rooting everything in the gospel, we don't root things in the gospel. We root our takeaways in ourselves and our own strength, but that never works. And why? Because we're sinners. We don't actually want to do good works. We're much like the Cretans. We're lazy and self-centered. We care far more about ourselves, about our comfort, about our convenience, about our ease than we do about calls to do good works. Sure, we might, be, we might do nice things from time to time. Sure, we are congenial to most people. But are we ready for every good work? Are we showing perfect courtesy to all people. It's much more likely that we show sort of grudging sarcasm to all the people that don't do what we want or who annoy us. Or at the very least, we want to do good works and show courtesy on our terms when it isn't difficult, inconvenient, or costly. If we're honest, we aren't really good at this at all. Our decent uprightness and suburban sensibilities of being nice are all on our terms. And this doesn't really get better with age. We just get marginally better at concealing it. Take our teens, for example, my youth groupers. Love you guys. Middle schoolers are notorious for not having any filters. Right? All those hormones, all that angst, they're all coming out, and you know exactly where everybody is. And that's why I love working with them. I know exactly where they are on so many things. And even when they try to be sly and conceal it, 
They don't have enough experience at playing the sort of socially acceptable character that it's pretty obvious what they're doing. And adults, you're not much better. It's not hard to get some, if not all of you, onto your soapbox, criticizing this, decrying that. I know where most of you are, and it is not hard to find out where you stand. If we look at the exhortations in this chapter, we'll find that we gloss over so many of our sins. So let's go over that list again. We're to be submissive to authorities when it's convenient to us or when we agree. But what about when it's inconvenient or wrong in our eyes? How many of you have sped or slowly slowly rolled through a stop sign? What about when we vehemently disagree with our authorities on things like masks? Then it's we have to stand up for our rights or what is right. We don't listen to direction all that well. We're not all that obedient. Rather, we're conditionally obedient. We are obedient if we think that's right or we think that it's easy or we think that, sure, why not? We're lazy and entitled. We're quick to criticize and demean. We argue over all sorts of things with contempt in our voices and words. We don't devote ourselves to good works, but devote ourselves to making ourselves more comfortable. And we throw away relationships all too easily simply because our so-called friends think differently about something that we think is important and obvious. Unless you think that that's all out there in the, in the culture, each of those examples, each of those things that I have just said have come in this church within the last three years. Friends, this is us. And we can't get away from that reality. We are far more like the Cretans than we give ourselves credit for. Which brings us back to the core message of Titus chapter 3. That the gospel is the source of change. Everything that the Cretans and by extension all Christians and by extension us are to do flows out of the transformational change in the gospel. So let's look at verses 3 to 7. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of our God, the, of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the re- washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Now, that's a pretty, gospel, pretty clear gospel description if I've ever seen one. We're sinners consumed by selfishness and perpetually in conflict with others. Jesus comes along and saves us by his grace and mercy, not because of our worthiness or works, but because of his love for us. He makes dead sinners alive in him and renews us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Most of us understand the particulars of the gospel. Death, resurrection, union. But as we dig into what the gospel does for us, the implications of what Jesus' death and resurrection applied to us mean, 
I think that we'll begin to understand how we, being mostly upright and decent, can actually seek change that is not by our, by our own strength and on our own terms, but that is meaningful and rooted in the gospel. You see, as we look at the Cretans in our before picture, we're going to see a selfishness that we have just gone over. But the question is why? Why are we selfish? Why are we foolish and disobedient? Why do we pass our days in malice and envy with conflict pervading every relationship? The simple answer is sin. But the real answer is really the insecurity that comes with sin. Back in the garden, back in Genesis, when the serpent strikes at the security of God's promise to Adam and Eve, it's he doesn't actually have your best interest at heart. You can't trust God and his promise. You have to look after yourself. Do you see the doubt that is created? The striking at who God is and his trustworthiness and his faithfulness, but it also strikes at our security in him. Do we actually trust God to give us what we need and not just give us what we need to live a bare bones existence, but to give us what we need to flourish. And in that insecurity, in that uncertainty, not knowing and not being willing to trust God with who we are, with our very selves, that we turn from him and to ourselves and thus to sin. As Christians, we are made new in Christ, we are, but we are still profoundly insecure people. Our insecurity and thus our desire to sin stems from our unwillingness, not our inability, but our unwillingness to trust others, particularly God, to love us and to provide for us. And we learn that insecurity throughout our lives. Our parents consistently fail us as we grow up. Each and every one of us probably has some sort of childhood trauma that we have to deal with. And why? Because our parents aren't perfect. What about friends? Friends fail us too. There are countless betrayals along the course of a friendship. And why? Because our friends aren't perfect. What about our pastors? They're godly people, right? Maybe. Our pastors fail us too. There have been more times than I can count where I've stuck my foot in my mouth with one of you and sinned against you. And why? Because I'm not perfect. Everyone fails. And so we have learned that everyone fails. And so who can we trust? Who can we trust to have our best interest at heart, to put us first, to make sure that we have everything that we could possibly need to make us secure? No one. No one in our experience. And so we view God through that same lens of distrust and suspicion. We use so much parental language with, with God. He's our father and we're his children. And so we sort of view him in the same way that we view our parents. We expect him to not meet our needs, even when that's factually not true. You see, Jesus and the gospel speak directly to that doubt and to that insecurity. The gospel addresses both of those things directly. The pages of the Bible are a story of God's grace, mercy, and faithfulness to a faithless people. 
Romans tells us that we have all fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. And yet at the same time, God shows his love for us that in while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Time and again, the Lord has proven his faithfulness, proven his worthiness, proven his reliability, and proven his love for us. Time and again, Jesus has met us at, a, at our worst. Right when we, right in that place where we fear to be truly known, where we sit there and we wonder if people just knew everything about me, they would reject me. Jesus sees that. He meets us right there in that fear, that greatest and most terrible fear of our lives. And he says, I know you at your worst and I love you right there. We are cynical people expecting the other shoe to fall and so we do our best to not rely on anyone else lest they inevitably fail us. But that expectation is where we start, I think. We start with our sin. We start with our cynicism. We have to see it, and we have to see that the gospel meets us right there and moves us. I love saying that the gospel moves us. I love reminding us that we are to start in our sin. We are to start right where we are. But we are never left there that Jesus always moves us from looking at the fall, from looking at our fear, from looking at our insecurity, to looking at our victory that we have in Jesus Christ. He meets us there in our sin and in our insecurity with his grace, which is richly abundant. And a quick sidebar. Do you see that one word, richly, in verse 6? Why is it there? Isn't it enough to hear that we have mercy and goodness and the loving kindness through the washing of regeneration and a renewal in the Holy Spirit? Why does it have to be poured out upon us richly? Well, it has to be rich because God's superabundance of grace obliterates our insecurities, our lack, our worries, our fears. It's really hard to feel insecure when you have more than you could possibly imagine. It's really hard to worry when you have every spiritual blessing that is yours in Christ Jesus. It is hard to be afraid when you have the phenomenal cosmic power of God that doesn't come in an itty-bitty little living space, as Aladdin tells us, right? But with the Holy Spirit who lives and dwells within you, you literally have the power of God at your fingertips. That's what it means to be united with Christ. And so it's the richness of God's grace that gives you the ability to be generous and not about yourself. It's the richness of what we have in him, the abundance of the gospel that enables us to change and to be changed. John Piper is famous for saying that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied in him, and that's right. Why? Because God is glorified when we are changed from a cynical, cautious, anxious, selfish egotist to someone who is beyond secure. We are rich beyond measure. Kindness, gentleness, and diligence are hard when they are costly in comparison to what we have. But when we have everything in Christ, it changes the mathematics. It's not as hard to be gracious, to be generous, to be kind, to be ready to help. Why? Because the focus isn't on us anymore. Because we have mountains upon mountains 
of resources. Why? Because we're in him. We've been taken care of. It's easier to be gracious when our reputations aren't threatened. Why? Because they've already become secure in Christ Jesus. We often hear about the immense generosity of Christians in poverty, living in Africa and Asia and South America. We, we see stories of them willing to give up their everything in generosity, happily. And we see that they have been freed from the worries and cares of their earthly circumstances in some ways. They've still got poverty and danger to endure. And let's face it, they it's hard. It's not easy. There are still concerns that they have, and yet they display the richness of the gospel in their generosity, in their happiness, in their contentment. And so we too have been freed to care about others. Friends, do you see that every aspect of who we are and how we behave changes when we receive Christ? Being united to Christ, being indwelled by the Holy Spirit, and all the implications of the gospel are what affect change in us. And so how do we change? How do we become more submissive to rulers and authorities? How do we become ready for every single good work? How do we deal with our cynicism and frustration and sinful habits? How do we get from here to there? How do, we get from, how do we become more gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love to people that make our blood boil? Well, there's good news. The Cretan Christians faced the same dilemma in situation. This book and this chapter are written to believers, not to unbelievers. This chapter and this book are written to people that are not good at living out their Christian identity. They are stuck in their old ways. They, are, they know, they, are, they, they have just started down the road towards sanctification. And they are being encouraged to live out of their new Christian identity. This chapter isn't a call to faith, but one that reminds us of who we once were and who we are now. Paul calls Titus not to anything special or groundbreaking. Rather, he calls Titus to consistency and to reliability and to a faithfulness to proclaim and remind himself and his sheep of the gospel. Titus is to discipline his people, both positively and negatively. Positive discipline is all the preaching and teaching and shepherding and exhortation and counsel and relationship building that Titus and we are to do. We are to consistently and faithfully set the gospel before each other that we might grow in it. The negative discipline is to follow the biblical pattern of discipline, to confront sin in our midst and to call each other to repentance. Negative discipline comes to produce repentance, to expose sin and to reclaim sinners. The excommunication that we see in verses 10 and 11 comes from unrepentance. We are to follow through on the God-prescribed pattern of consequences for our unrepentance, even when it's hard. And so we're to do all the normal things, to call each other to repentance, to show each other grace and mercy, to embody Christ and to call each other out. But mostly, it's about reminding them of their before and after pictures, to call them to live lives of repentance the side of heaven. By the grace of God, none of these exhortations are new. 
But we need to be consistently reminded of who we are in the gospel, that we might die more and more to our sin and live more and more to our uh, live more and more unto righteousness. And so, for the most part, I have a fond saying with my youth group: I don't care so much about you and your sin. I care much more about you and your love for the Lord. The more you love the Lord, the more your repentance will follow. And so the goal is not to stop. The goal is to keep on more and more towards Jesus. The way that we change our, our behavior is to embrace and focus on the gospel more and more. Christians are gospel people more than anything else. The gospel doesn't just start us down the path, but shepherds us as we walk. We don't ever move on from the gospel. It's always front and center. It's the reason why we do good works. It's the reason why we step into hard things with willingness and joy. It's our assurance and comfort when our feelings don't cooperate. It's the motivation to give grace to those who don't deserve it. And it's also our treasure and goal as we live to become more like Jesus. And so what's the takeaway? Not only from today, but from our series in the pastoral epistles. That we're worse than we realize and more loved than we can imagine? Absolutely. That the gospel behavior flows out of gospel identity? Well, sure. But throughout this series on the pastoral epistles, we've been talking a lot about truth and leadership. We've got nomination season coming up in uh, January. We need more elders and more deacons. And as we think about leadership, Jesus ultimately gives us the example. Just as the, as the gospel is at the core of everything's in our, everything in our lives, so too is the gospel at the core of our leadership. And each and every one of us exercises leadership in some way, shape, or form. In our various spheres of responsibility, we are to lead as befits a follower of Christ. In the roles that we play as parents, as elders, as deacons, as Sunday school teachers, as soundboard people, as set-up people, as older siblings, or as older friends. The gospel ought to be central. Are we displaying Christ? And are we looking for Christ in those who have leadership for us, over us? That's the truth that we need to sustain us through the turbulent storms of life. Do we see Jesus in the word, in our lives, in those around us, and in the church? We need Jesus. Do you see him? That's the big question that's before us. So, let's pray. Father God, we confess that we often look upon our Christian life as a to-do list. Things that we need to do to change, to become, quote-unquote, better Christians. Do this, don't do that. And Lord, that's not what this is about. Lord, open our eyes to see you. For Lord, we need to fall more and more in love with you. We need to be captivated more by you if we have any hope of changing who we are. Lord, we fool ourselves all the time that we think we can do this on our own. But Lord, remind us. Remind us of our great need for you. Remind us that you are the change giver. 
and that we are not. Remind us of your gospel, that we have been and already are saved by your grace, that we can live in newness of life. Lord, make us more like you by the power of your Holy Spirit. Transform us that we might be able to look back and see the wonder of your gospel and your grace. And so, Lord, be with us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.